welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We want to thank all of you for listening to our shows, and we hope that you're enjoying learning history through our stories. In the process of researching a story, you really enjoy learning the history that surrounds each story. And that's what keeps us fired up. There's so much out there that isn't taught in schools. This episode from our Legends series is titled Australia's Greatest War Horses, The Whalers. Whalers spelled W-A-L-E-R. And it covers the story of an incredible breed of horse that deserves its place in history. The Whaler horse originates in New South Wales, Australia, hence its name, The Whaler. It first caught our attention as the subject of a book titled Bill the Bastard, a World War I soldier's story of his incredible Whaler mount. Only six years ago, a massive public information campaign was launched to protect the Whalers from culling, and a ban seems to be in place. However, the culling of mixed breeds like the Brumby is still being looked at as a solution on federal lands in Australia. Mankind, being given the ability to care for much of nature, has a responsibility to find better solutions, and the plight of the whalers and the brumbies has prompted a lot of people to open their eyes to new solutions. Five whalers arrived in Australia with the first fleet in 1788. As to the story Bill the Bastard by author Roland Perry, it's an incredible saga of man and horse in war, from a time when thousand man and horse cavalry charges were needed to overcome entrenched enemy forces, as was needed at the charge of Beersheba in the Anzac campaign in Palestine in 1917. Bill the Bastard was a huge whaler horse, Australia's horse of choice for the legendary Light Horse Brigade, chosen for that breed's ability to survive harsh conditions and still be counted on to give their all. Bill the Bastard was huge for his breed and cantankerous, as his nickname would suggest, allowing only one man the privilege of riding them. It's historical fiction well done, combining forgotten history with a great story to leave an impression the reader won't soon forget. The story of the Whalers begins in 1788 with the arrival of the first 736 convicts banished from England to Australia to begin a penal colony there. Over the next 60 years, approximately 50,000 criminals were transported from Great Britain to the land down under, in one of the strangest episodes in criminal justice history. The accepted wisdom of the upper and ruling classes in 18th century England was that criminals were inherently defective. Thus, they could not be rehabilitated and simply required separation from the genetically pure and law-abiding citizens. Accordingly, lawbreakers had to be either killed or exiled, since prisons were too expensive. During the American Revolution, England was busy exiling their worst criminals to the Americas, with hopes that the stubborn colonials, when faced with England's worst, might finally give in and swear allegiance to King George. With the American victory in the Revolutionary War, transgressors could no longer be shipped off across the Atlantic, and the English had to look for a colony in another direction. Captain Arthur Phillip, a tough but fair career naval officer, was charged with setting up the first penal colony in Australia. The convicts were chained beneath the deck during the entire hellish six-month voyage. The first voyage claimed the lives of nearly 10% of the prisoners, which remarkably proved to be a rather good rate. On later trips, up to a third of the unwilling passengers died on the way. 
These were not hardened criminals by any measure. Only a small minority were transported for violent offenses. Among the first group was a 70-year-old woman who had stolen cheese to eat. Although not confined behind bars, most convicts in Australia had an extremely tough life. The guards who volunteered for duty in Australia seemed to be driven by exceptional sadism. Even small violations of the rules could result in a punishment of a hundred lashes by the cat nine tails. It was said that blood was usually drawn after five lashes, and convicts ended up walking home in boots filled with their own blood, that is, if they were able to walk. Convicts who attempted to escape were sent to tiny Norfolk Island, 600 miles east of Australia, where the conditions were even more inhumane. The only hope of escape from the horror of Norfolk Island was a game in which groups of three prisoners drew straws. The short straw was killed as painlessly as possible, and a judge was then shipped in to put the other two on trial, one playing the role of killer, the other as witness. And now you have a fairly good idea of Britain's penal system in the late 18th century. In 1788, according to Whaler Horse Association's website at whalerhorse.com, the first fleet of 11 ships to Australia brought with it one stallion, two colts, and four mares from the Cape of Good Hope. They were generally thought to be barb horses. Later ships, such as the Britannia, which landed in 1795, brought a further 33 Cape horses. The increasing demand in the fledgling colony for saddle and workhorses led to migration of notable breeds such as the Thoroughbred, the Clydesdale, the Suffolk Punch, Cleveland Bay, Lincolnshire Trotter, Norfolk Roadster, Yorkshire Coacher, Hackney, Timor Pony, Arabian, Percheron, and native British ponies. From the outset of European settlement, it was realized horses were needed that could meet the demands of this very tough country. All horses that reached Australian shores had already undergone a tough sea voyage, and many horses died along the way. From those survivors, the foundation of a uniquely Australian colonial horse was established. The practice of cross-breeding the small number of breeds available in Australia at the time resulted in a versatile workhorse with good weight-carrying capabilities, speed, endurance, and the ability to thrive on the native pastures. Successive governors encouraged the breeding of horses to meet the needs of transport and communications in the developing colony of Australia. Soon, owners of large properties were to breed these colonial horses by the thousands, not only for the domestic needs, but for what became a lucrative export trade in remounts, initially to the British Army in India. Strict standards of confirmation and temperament were monitored by breeders for the fastidious remount horse agents. These colonial-bred horses became known as the Whaler, a term coined by the British in India given to those horses that were bred in the colony of New South Wales. The colony is specially adapted for the breeding of saddle and light harness horses, and it is doubtful where these particular breeds of Australian horses are anywhere surpassed. The bush horse is hardy and swift and capable of making very long and rapid journeys when fed only on the ordinary herbage of the country. And in times of drought, when grass and water have become scanty, these animals often perform astonishing feats of endurance. In coming years, they were interbred with other types of horses to be used as mounts for cavalry. 
The whalers became prized for their strength and ability to survive long intervals between water. The whalers became a big part of the eventual exploration and settling of Australia. In the Second Boer War in South Africa and the Middle Eastern campaigns of World War I, they were the chosen mounts of the Australian Light Horse Brigades. One of the most courageous and internationally recognized charges was that of the 4th and 12th Regiments at Beersheba on 31st of October, 1917, where, after a full night's march and a day's fighting with no water, they galloped across a burning plain at the entrenched and heavily armed Turks who were dug into trenches with artillery, machine guns, and rifles on constant fire during a long charge, winning the day and the water wells of Beersheba. A monument was erected in Sydney by returned soldiers who, due to the horse quarantine and army economies, had to leave their mounts behind. It has the inscription, By members of the Desert Mounted Corps and Friends, to the gallant horses who carried them over the Sinai Desert into Palestine, 1915 through 1919. They suffered wounds, thirst, hunger, and weariness almost beyond endurance, but they never failed. They did not come home. And that was true. Of 130,000 whaler horses that were sent out to war, only one returned home. War was hell on men and horses until horses were phased out by motorized vehicles, and it took a special breed of horse to be used as a cavalry mount in harsh climates in battle conditions. Strong bonds were formed between man and horse in war. I'll give you a little more background from the book Bill the Bastard by Michael Shanahan, who served in the wars. His horse Bill began his service at Gallipoli, where he earned a reputation delivering riders with mail from the beaches to the Anzac Post. It was a dangerous seven-kilometer journey, and often either the rider or the horse was shot by Turks from ambush. Bill gained the reputation for returning with the mail more often than the rider, and soon soldiers were placing bets on whether or not the rider would make it. It got a bit macabre when they started betting on the best rider in the cavalry or Bill. Author Professor Roland Perry was quoted to have told News.com. Shanahan made it through with Bill and asked that he be assigned this horse, which had a habit of bucking riders, so only the very best riders were paired with him. At the time, the military treated horses roughly, whipping them freely, pulling on the reins, and riding them till they collapsed, Perry continued. But Shanahan was an excellent horse whisperer. He could cajole, but was never brutal. He was a hundred years ahead of his time. The whaler horse Bill soon gained a reputation for being fearless, standing his ground during ambushes and warning his rider of dangers ahead, using his keen instinct and sense of smell. Shanahan persuaded his captain to let him take Bill into battle when 100,000 horses headed out into the hot desert for the pivotal battle of Rumani. Both sides desperately needed a win to take control of the wells. August 5, 1916 should be a date writ large in Australian history, said Professor Perry. It was a magnificent effort. A pitched battle was going on between the Turks and the Australians, with the sides just 32 meters apart. The right flank was under fierce assault. One group of five Tasmanian troopers from the Light Horse Brigade had seen their horses either panicked and lost or shot out from underneath them. Bill the Bastard stayed calm and waited as three troopers hurried across the sand and scrambled onto Bill's back. Then another two stood each on one stirrup. 
Bill snorted and took off as best he could in the soft sand while under fire, for one kilometer, carrying them all to safety. That horse fought for six hours through deep sand that night. Shanahan was shot in the leg, but kept fighting, going up and down the lines until he collapsed. Shanahan then rode Bill three miles to the vet, who passed Shanahan on to a medic. Bill was retired from action, and Shanahan was able to give him to friendlies for safekeeping when the campaign ended. Not so with most of the other whaler horses. The whaler combined a variety of breeds, particularly the thoroughbred, Arab, the Cape horse from the Cape of Good Hope, the Timor pony, and perhaps a little Clydesdale or Percheron. It was originally considered only a type of horse and not a distinct breed. However, as a land race bred under the extreme climate and challenging working conditions of Australia, the whaler developed into a hardy horse with great endurance, even when under extreme stress from lack of food and water. It was used as a stockman's horse and prized as a military remount. Whalers were also used by bush rangers, troopers, and exploration expeditions that traversed inland Australia. The preferred whalers for cavalry duties were 15 to 16 hands high. Those over 16 hands were rejected for use in the South Australian Bushman Corps. Unbroken horses, as well as those with gray and broken or spotted coat colors, were also rejected. The selected horses had to be of a good type that could carry 16 or 17 stone, that would be 224 to 238 pounds, day after day. The whalers carried the rider, saddle, saddlecloth, bridle, head collar, lead rope, a horseshoe case with one front and one hind shoe, nails, rations for the horse and rider, a bedroll, change of clothing, a rifle, and about 90 pounds of 303 rifle ammunition. The gates of the whaler were considered ideal for a cavalry mount. It could maintain a fast walk and could progress directly to a steady, level canter without resorting to a trot, which was noisy, liable to dislodge gear, and resulted in soreness in the horse's back. The cavalry horse required docility, courage, speed, and athletic ability as it carried the rider into battle. The infantryman's horse was used as a means of transport from one point to another, for example, from camp to a battleground, where the horses were kept back from the fighting. Heavier animals were selected and used for draft and pack horse duties. While in warfare service in North Africa, some whalers proved successful in races against local Egyptian horses and assorted thoroughbreds. In 1919, horses from the Anzac Mounted Division won five of the six events in Heliopolis, near Cairo. And that might remind some of you of the movie Hidalgo, which was a fictional story of an American quarter horse rider who responded to the challenge of a long-distance horse race in Egypt. Between the 1840s and 1946, many Australian horses were exported as remount horses for the Australian Army, and they achieved incredible feats at war. The horses varied in type as they were purchased according to demand to suit specific needs. There were troopers' mounts, officers' mounts, heavy and light artillery, field batteries, and the like. The light horse cavalry was known as the national arm of Australia's defense, and when Australia joined the war against Germany in 1914, young Australians joined by the thousands. They were put through a series of riding tests, and only the best riders made the light horse cavalry. They were sworn in and issued their uniforms, the normal AIF jacket, cord riding breeches, leather leggings, 
and the famous Australian slouch hat with leather bandolier and 90 rounds of 303 ammunition. Most of the mounts they brought with them, or that were assigned to them, were whalers. Each horse was branded with a government broad arrow and the initials of the purchasing officer, and an army number was placed under one hoof. The horse was fitted with a special military saddle designed to carry a remarkable array of military equipment. Across the rider's front was strapped a rolled greatcoat, and slung from the saddle was a canvas water bucket and nose bag with a day's grain ration. The horses that produced these outstanding horses continued to breed in Australia, and descendants formed a base for the Australian horse breed organizations, such as the Australian Stock Horse Society and the Whaler Horse Society. During the Boer War, Australia dispatched 16,314 horses overseas for use by the Australian Infantry Forces. In the First World War, 121,324 whalers were sent overseas to the Allied armies in Africa, Europe, India, and Palestine. Of these, 39,348 served with the 1st Australian Imperial Force, mainly in the Middle East, while 81,976 were sent to India. Due to quarantine restrictions, only one whaler is known to have been returned to Australia, Sandy, the mount of Major General W.T. Bridges, an officer who died at Gallipoli in May of 1915. The rest were ordered shot or sold. There is a reason for Australia's strict quarantine regulations. Australia has perhaps the world's strictest quarantine standards. Quarantine in northern Australia is important because of its proximity to Southeast Asia and the Pacific, which have many pests and diseases not present in Australia. For this reason, the region from Cairns to Broome, including the Torres Strait, is the focus for many important quarantine activities that protect all Australians. As Australia has been geographically isolated from other major continents for millions of years, there is an endemically unique ecosystem free of several severe pests and diseases that are present in many parts of the world. If other products are brought inside along with pests and diseases, it would damage the ecosystem seriously and add millions of dollars of cost to local agriculture. The English cavalry officer, Lieutenant Colonel R.M.P. Preston, summed up the Australian Light Horse's performance in his book, The Desert Mounted Corps, November 16, 1917. The operations had now continued for 17 days, practically without cessation, and a rest was absolutely necessary, especially for the horses. Cavalry Division had covered nearly 170 miles, and their horses had been watered on an average of once every 36 hours. The heat, too, had been intense, and the short rations, 9.5 pounds of grain per day without bulk food, had weakened them greatly. Indeed, the hardship endured by some horses was almost incredible. One of the batteries of the Australian Mounted Division had only been able to water its horses three times in the last nine days, the actual intervals being 68, 72, and 76 hours respectively. Yet this battery on its arrival had lost only eight horses from exhaustion, not counting those killed in action or evacuated wounded. The majority of horses in the Corps were whalers, and there is no doubt that these hardy Australian horses make the finest cavalry mounts in the world. The Australians have got types of compact, 
well-built saddle and harness horses that no other part of the world can show. Rather on the light side according to our ideas, but hard as nails and with beautiful clean legs and feet. Their records in this war placed them far above the cavalry horse of any other nation. The Australians themselves can never understand our partiality for the half-bred weight-carrying hunter, which looks to them like a cart horse. Their contention has always been that good blood will carry more weight than big bone, and the experience of this war has converted the writer, for one, entirely to their point of view. It must be remembered that the Australian countrymen are bigger, heavier men than their English brothers. They formed just half the corps, and it's probable that they averaged not far off twelve stone. To this weight must be added another nine and a half stone for saddle, ammunition, sword, rifle, clothes, and accoutrements, so that each horse carried a weight of twenty-one stone, all day, every day, for seventeen days, on less than half the normal ration of forage, and with only one drink every thirty-six hours. The weight-carrying English hunter had to be nursed back to fitness after these operations, and for a long period, while the little Australian whalers, without any special care, other than good food and plenty of water, were soon fit to go through another campaign, as arduous as the last one. At the end of the war, 11,000 surplus horses in the Middle East were sold to the British Army as remounts for Egypt and India. Some horses that were categorized as being unfit were destroyed. Also, some light horsemen chose to destroy their horses rather than part with them, but this was an exception, despite the popular myth that portrays it as the fate of all the war horses. Parting with their whalers was one of the hardest events the light horsemen had to endure. A poem by Trooper Bluegum sums up the men's sentiment. I don't think I could stand the thought of my old fancy hack just crawling round old Cairo with a jippo on his back. Perhaps some English tourist out in Palestine may find my broken-hearted whaler with a wooden plow behind. No, I think I'd better shoot him and tell a little lie. He floundered in a wombat hole and then lay down to die. Maybe I'll get court-martialed, but I'm damned if I'm inclined to go back to Australia and leave my horse behind. And that was from the book Australia in Palestine, 1919. During World War II, 360 Australian whalers were assigned to the Texas National Guard 112th Cavalry in New Caledonia. The horses were eventually deemed unfit for jungle warfare. They were sent to India where they served the Chinese Army before being assigned to the unit known as Merrill's Marauders. Merrill's Marauders, named after Frank Merrill, or Unit Galahad, officially named the 5307th Composite Unit Provisional, was a United States Army long-range penetration special operations jungle warfare unit, which fought in the Southeast Asian Theater of World War II, or China-Burma-India Theater. The unit became famous for its deep penetration missions behind Japanese lines, often engaging Japanese forces superior in number. The unit was to have 700 animals that included 360 mules. There were to be as many more, but the ship that carrying them was torpedoed in the Arabian Sea. In slightly more than five months of combat, the marauders had advanced 750 miles through some of the hardest jungle terrain in the world, fought in five major engagements, Walabum, Shaduzup, Nkengatong, Nifunga, and Miakina, 
and engaged in combat with the Japanese army on 32 separate occasions, including two conventional defensive battles with enemy forces for which the force had not been intended or equipped. Battling Japanese soldiers, hunger, fevers, and disease, they had traversed more jungle terrain on their long-range missions than any other U.S. Army formation during World War II. And the whalers, right with them every minute, had performed admirably. The men of the Merrill's Marauders enjoyed the rare distinction of having each soldier awarded the Bronze Star. In June of 1944, the 5307th was awarded the Distinguished Unit Citation, which says that the unit must display such gallantry, determination, and esprit de corps in accomplishing its mission under extremely difficult and hazardous conditions as to set it apart and above other units participating in the same campaign. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As demand for remounts declined in the 1940s, the whaler trade ended. When the Australian Stock Horse Society was formed in 1971, the majority of horses accepted into its stud book were whaler horses. The ASHS also accepted horses of other breeds, notably quarter horses, which has always been controversial. While many stock horses do have quarter horse genetics in their breeding, not all do as there are still many breeders who only breed horses of the old heritage bloodlines. These heritage stock horses have extensive pedigrees, often back to the 19th century, and are direct descendants of whalers with no quarter horse or other modern breeds. In the 1980s, efforts began to reestablish the breed using feral whalers descended from horses that had been set loose in rural regions after the commercial trade ceased. The Whaler Horse now has two breed associations interested in preserving it, the Whaler Horse Owners and Breeders Association Australia and the Whaler Horse Society of Australia. Only horses and their progeny derived from the old bloodlines with no imported genetics since 1945 can be registered as Whalers with the WHO BAA. A memorial statue to the Whaler Light Horse was erected at Tamworth, New South Wales as a tribute to the men of the Anzac Corps who served in the Boer, Sudan, and First World Wars. Today's whaler is a functional Australian horse bred from bloodlines that came to Australia before 1945 that is free of imported genetics since that time. Many stories came from riders of whaler horses, and these are just a few. This one, Trooper meets up with a horse from home. Life is full of coincidences, but when Trooper Geoffrey Hugh Armstrong helped to unload Australian-bred horses in the Middle East after the Gallipoli campaign. He certainly did not expect to find one from his own hometown, let alone from the very station on which he was born. Geoffrey Armstrong was born on Milroy Station near Brewerina, New South Wales, in 1891. He was brought up on the station and later went as a jackaroo to Saltern Creek Station near Balcaldine in Queensland so he was completely at home on horseback. He enlisted in early 1915 and spent time training at, at Anogera near Brisbane before becoming a member of the 11th Light Horse Regiment, 
part of the 4th Light Horse Brigade. That brigade sailed for the Middle East with their mounts, but when the convoy was about 200 miles south of Adelaide, they were ordered to return to Adelaide to disembark the horses. It transpired that when it was realized the horses were unsuitable for the terrain at Gallipoli, the decision was taken to have them offloaded. The men of the light horse discovered they would be reinforcements fighting on foot. Having survived Gallipoli, Trooper Armstrong returned to the Middle East and began training in desert warfare. When their replacement mounts arrived, the horses were sent inland by train and soldiers were detailed to unload and take details of the horses. Trooper Armstrong set to work and the first horse he handled had the brand of Milroy Station, indicating that it had been born and bred there, just like himself. Hardly able to believe his luck, he made representations to his commanding officer, Colonel Grant, for permission to have the horse assigned to him, which the colonel willingly gave. There's little doubt that having Miss Milroy, as Trooper Armstrong called her, was a huge boost to his morale and gave him great comfort to know that his mount was almost one of the family. Miss Milroy carried Trooper Armstrong throughout the desert campaign, including the famous charge on Beersheba, which routed the Turks and gave the Allies access to vital water supplies. And the story, titled, He Charged at Beersheba with the Light Horse. The air was filled with the sound of thundering hooves and the shouts of exhilaration from hundreds of young Australian light horse troops as they raced across the desert toward the Turkish lines at Beersheba. The enemy turned the machine guns on the advancing lines of horsemen, trying in vain to stop the tide as it swept towards them. Within minutes, the Turks were overwhelmed as the Australians jumped their horses over the first line of trenches and then leaped off to engage in fierce hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Among the troops was a young West Australian lad riding his favorite horse, a chestnut mare bred and raised at Nortum. Armed with just his rifle and the courage of adrenaline, he was caught up in the excitement of the last and one of the most successful cavalry charges ever made. Only the men in the center had bayonets, Horace Flitcroft recalled. We were carrying rifles on the flanks. Trooper Horace Flitcroft was still 17 when he arrived in the Middle East just three months earlier, but was now a veteran of several battles riding with the 10th Light Horse. He survived the Beersheba charge without injury, and went on to fight in many more major encounters, especially in Palestine. Horace Flitcroft had migrated to Australia with his family from Cumberland in England just three years earlier. He left school to take up an apprenticeship as a fitter with the Western Australian Government Railways at Midland. While still only 17, he enlisted on April 1, 1917, and soon found himself a member of the Light Horse, having easily passed the horse-riding test held at Claremont. Only six of the 36 men who showed up passed. He was soon on his way to the Middle East, quickly gaining experience from fighting in several major battles before the charge at Beersheba. Australian General Harry Chauvel had orders to storm Beersheba before nightfall. The precious wells were the goal of the troops with an urgent need for their water supplies. With just a few hours of daylight left, Chauvel gave the go-ahead to Brigadier William Grant, who had assembled his two leading regiments, the 4th and the 12th, with the 11th to follow behind. And so began the famous charge. First at a trot, then into a canter as they got closer, and finally to a gallop as the Turkish lines came into view. 
Fierce fighting took place, but the Australians prevailed, and Beersheba was taken. With service at places such as Moascar, Ismaila, Merikeb, Bela, Port Said, and Cairo behind him, Trooper Flitcroft returned to Australia in July 1919 on board the MV Morvada. He took up a soldier settlement of several thousand acres at Gabon in western Australia, clearing the land to enable him to farm wheat and sheep. He then built himself a humpy from rough timber and hessian and lived there for nearly five years before he was able to build a decent mud-brick dwelling. In 1928, Horace Flitcroft married Marjorie, and they lived on the farm for about 30 years. Their main entertainment was dancing, a far cry from his days as a light horseman. Horace was a regular master of ceremonies at the local Saturday night dances. He died when he was 98 years old. There are also sad tales. Midnight and his rider, Lieutenant Guy Hayden, were two of the casualties that day at Beersheba. Midnight was born at midnight on October 31, 1905, on the Bloomfield Stud property in the Hunter Valley, NSW. Guy was 16 when she was born, and she became Guy's special horse. They enlisted together with his brother Barney in his horse, Polo. Guy was in the 12th Light Horse Regiment that day. A bullet went through Midnight's stomach as she jumped the trench, continued through the saddle, and lodged in Guy's back, millimeters from his spine. The bullet was removed a few days later, and Guy recovered, but Midnight did not. This magnificent black thoroughbred has sacrificed her life, but saved Guy's. His family still has the bullet that was removed. The Australian Whaler Horse will long be remembered as one of the greatest war horses of the 20th century. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Don't forget to enjoy our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. And we hope that you're subscribed to all our shows and that you help others find their way with us as well. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back soon. 